Good morning. We're glad to have you worshiping with us at Rivermont today, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking together at verses 15 down to 22 in Colossians chapter 1. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of peace. Do you ever wonder what you really need for peace? Lots of things that we try to use and lean upon to produce peace in our lives, but what do you really need for peace? Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we read your word, you would send your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold Jesus here that we would know what He has done to make peace on our behalf. We pray it all in Christ's strong name. Amen. There's a story that's often told about a medieval king who struggled to have a sense of peace. And so he commissioned artists to paint paint scenes of peace and he would place one of them in his bedchambers to give him peace as he went to sleep at night. One of these artists painted a scene of a lake with children playing all about. Another painted a scene of a seashore with gulls above and no waves on the sea. There was a fisherman calmly resting in his boat as the sea was serene and calm. A third artist produced a scene of a torrential storm. There was wind and rain and trees bending to the breaking point. And the king looked at this and supposed that the artist was just toying with him and demanded an explanation. The artist said, if you'll look carefully, you will see in the cleft of the rock face, there's a nest. And in that nest, there's a mother bird clutching her young. Do you know that kind of peace? Indeed, do we know that kind of peace? Do we know a peace that offers itself when life swirls in storms all around us? Do we know a peace that enables a moment of calm when everything around us feels like it's threatening and filled with danger. It's the kind of peace that Paul offers to us through what the Lord Jesus has done. And what we need to experience that peace, Paul suggests, is to know Jesus. The real Jesus, the true Jesus, brings peace into our lives. How so? Well, first we see in this text we have peace because Jesus is the supreme Lord. 
Now, these verses that we just read are some of the densest theological material in the entire New Testament. In fact, I would encourage you to spend this week, this Christmas week, going over and over again in your mind this passage as you prepare for Christmas. And I promise you, it will be a feast for your soul and it will put your whole life into perspective because in it we find that Jesus is the Supreme Lord. Now, Paul had to tell that to the, the church at Colossae because some false teachers had come in and believed that in Christ we have forgiveness, which is good as far as, as, far as it goes. And Jesus wipes away our sin. He cleanses our guilt. But these false teachers taught that to break the power of corruption, to break the bonds of sin in our life, then we need something more. The power in the reign of Jesus isn't strong enough to subdue those darker parts of our hearts and our lives. They needed angelic beings. They needed some secret truths to intervene and help them with the corrupting power of sin that remained in their lives, even when their guilt was wiped away. But Paul said to these false teachers, no. What we really need is a God who comes to us, which we have in power in the Lord Jesus. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. And that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation. God has taken on flesh. The invisible God has now been made visible. What we couldn't see in the past has now been made manifest. And so we don't need to wonder what God is like. We don't need to wonder what He wants, what His will is, what He desires, and how He thinks about sinners like us. We don't need to wonder because we see Him in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Truly, God has taken on flesh and come and dwelt among us. And what's more, Paul says in verse 19, in this Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That expression, the fullness was also apparently an expression that these false teachers used. We have Jesus, yes, they said, but in order to have the fullness of God in your life, you need something more. You need these, these thrones and dominions and powers and authorities, as he mentions a little bit earlier. You need some secret knowledge. You need something more than Jesus to have the fullness of God in your life, the false teachers taught. But again, Paul says, no. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. All of God, all of His attributes, all of His power, all of His Lordship, all of His ability to rule is in Jesus, the One who took on flesh for us. All of God is given for you. And that same Jesus, the, the One who took on flesh as a helpless little babe, is the One who is the Supreme Lord over all creation. He rules over it all. Everything that happens, He is in uh, uh, command of those things. He even calls Him in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. And some of us may get nervous when we read that Jesus is the firstborn. And we may wonder, does that mean that Jesus was created like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that He was the first person created? Because if that's true, if that's what this verse teaches, then He couldn't be God. But that's not what Paul is saying as he makes it very clear in verse 16. All creation was created by him. Even those angelic beings that the false teachers appeal to, the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, it all has been created by God. Everything that has a beginning had its beginning in the Lord Jesus. How could he be a created thing 
if he was the one who did all the creating. You see, the, the Colossians didn't hear what Paul said as though he was the first created person, but they immediately would have recognized what he was teaching because he's referring to this law of primogeniture, which was very common in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the firstborn received all the wealth and the honor of the father. The standing, the titles, the status, the honor, the glory, the power, all of it was given to the firstborn. So what Paul is saying here, it's just using this very common expression in the ancient world, is that Jesus is equal to the father. All the Father's honor, all His glory, all His power, all His strength, all His might, all His wisdom, it all is in the Lord Jesus. And He's supreme Lord over all creation because He not only created it, but He inherits it as the firstborn. In verse 17, He even holds it all together. There is no one higher. There is no lack of His glory. There is no lack to His power to bring about His purposes, His plans, and His goals Because He is the supreme Lord over all creation. Now there are some today that along with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses think the same thing as the false teachers. They think that Jesus was a good guy. He was a great moral teacher. He was a a wonderful example of how to live your life. He was a sacrificially humble person. But He's not God in the flesh, they might suppose. And as that theology developed over the first couple of centuries, that position came to be known as Arianism. It followed a leader named Arius who taught that Jesus was outstanding, he's wonderful, he's great, but he's just not God. But we have, what we have to know at Christmas is that Arius met his match in Santa Claus. True story. In the year 325... Constantine called a council of 300 leaders of the church to meet at Nicaea. It's in modern-day Turkey to discuss this very question. Who is Jesus? And this man, Arius, came. He had gained a little bit of a following over against what, to that point, had been settled Christianity. Most leaders in the church believed, along here with Paul, that Jesus is God in the flesh. But Arius didn't, and he was trying to take the church in a direction of heresy. So often I see her, they went to meet and settle this question. And another leader who was there at this council was Nicholas of Myra. Now, Nicholas was known for his gifts to the poor, including and especially gifts to poor children. And through that gift giving and some clever writing, Nicholas of Myra came to be known as jolly old Saint Nick. Santa Claus. It's a true story. And at this council... This council meeting, Santa Claus, Saint Nick, became impassioned against Arius and his teaching that Jesus isn't who he said he is. He's not truly God in the flesh. And in fact, Saint Nicholas grew so impassioned that he walked over to Arius in the middle of this council and he slapped him. Hey, Arius, how's this for ho, ho, ho? Whap! The other leaders, the other bishops there sequestered Nicholas, they put him away until they could finish their meeting in unity where they affirmed that indeed the Bible does teach and God's people have always believed since the apostles that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the supreme Lord over all creation. And in fact, they began to develop this Nicene Creed which we're going to recite a little later in the service today. I suppose it's a good thing that the tradition of giving gifts stuck 
instead of the old Christmas slap for a Christmas. I mean, who, who says church history can't be fun, right? But beyond those false teachers and Colossae and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and followers of Arius and liberal theologians in the secular world that claim that Jesus isn't truly he, who he says he is, perhaps you're here this morning and you think, that's a great story, but it really doesn't have any contact with my life. I don't think like that. I know that Jesus is supreme Lord in this world. Well, not quite so fast. Because we practically live as if we've forgotten this truth all the time. How so? But we forget that Jesus is the supreme Lord when we are filled with anxiety and we exhibit control issues in our lives. At times, our lives are filled with this hand-wringing because something isn't quite working out and we think perhaps there's frustration in heaven because the plans aren't working. Maybe Jesus isn't strong enough. Maybe He's not good enough to handle this thing in my life right now. Or we get the sense that I have to work so hard and ensure a certain result because Jesus isn't up to getting the job done. So much of our stress in this life comes when we seek to take responsibility to control an outcome that is impossible for us to control. Now, please don't hear me suggest that we need not work hard. But what I am suggesting is that sometimes we worry ourselves to the bone seeking to ensure that a certain outcome happens even if we don't have any ability, any power to make that outcome happen. And we become manipulators in chief. We pull strings to make sure that somebody does exactly what I know they should. Often living as if verse 17 would say, in me all things hold together. We might be tempted to play junior Holy Spirit. Especially with our kids. And especially with our friends and our families. We attempt to emotionally wrangle somebody into doing what we know that they should be doing. And yet all the while, we're filled up with anxiety and anything but peace. Yet, friends, the truth is that we can have peace because there isn't any hand-wringing in heaven. There isn't any wondering if Jesus is strong enough to bring about His will, if He's strong enough and able to bring about His purposes in creation. Because Jesus is supremely Lord. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord of the details of our lives too. In Him, all things hold together. There's no lack to His power and there's no lack to His goodness. He's supreme Lord over all creation. But Paul takes it another step. He says he's also supreme Lord over recreation too. Look at verse 18. In verse 15, Paul said he's firstborn among creation. And now he says he's firstborn from the dead. Now, what could that possibly mean? Well, it means that through his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has fully defeated all of the powers of sin and death. By His resurrection, He's triumphed over the powers and the forces that try to hold people in bondage to sin and death. His life and His resurrection have been given for us and given to us. And as such, He's begun reordering this world, all things in the cosmos, and He's including reordering and renewing our hearts. As firstborn of the dead, he, he holds power over sin and over death. And there is no power of sin in your life that Jesus is unable to break. 
As we sing in the hymn, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He removes all those accusations against us. But He also, the hymn says, sets the prisoner free. You and I are no longer dominated by our sin. We are no longer slaves to our sin as we once were. For in Christ you are free. He is firstborn from among the dead. And His power, His resurrection power, has been given to you and indwells you today. You may have been a liar in your life. But in Christ you are no more. You are free to live for Him. He gives you power to now be a truth teller. You may have been a cheater in your life. But you are no more. For He has canceled that guilt and now He lives within you to enable you to be faithful. There is true hope for change in this life because there is no area of distress or brokenness or sin that Jesus is unable to redeem in His time. All of God in Christ is using His power to work in us, to work His resurrection life in us. And friends, our sin is no match for the resurrection power of Jesus. And He's given it to us. We are free. Because Jesus has not only wiped our sin clean, wiped our lives clean, but His power rests among us as well to make us new. Since Jesus is supreme, He is firstborn from among the dead, and no sinner is too far gone. And no sin's grip is too powerful that Jesus is unable to break it. There may be some storms in your life. There may be a swirling torrent of sin and flesh in your life. But remember, Jesus reigns. And you have peace. We also see in this text that we have peace because Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Perhaps you feel this morning that Yes, Jesus is supremely powerful, but maybe you feel like there's no certainty that He's willing to use that power to benefit me. Because if you look at my life, and I'm tempted to believe if God looks at my life and looks at what's hidden in my heart, then He's just going to turn away. He doesn't want to have anything to do with somebody like me. You may fear that, friends, but the reality is so different. Verse 19 begins with, a little Greek word that could be translated for, as it is in the ESV, here in our, in our pew Bibles. It can be translated because also. It can be translated so that. It's a word that indicates a, a causal relationship, a consequence of some action. And so here we're told in verse 19, we're let in on the reason or the cause between, behind all of this action that Jesus as the Supreme Lord and now sufficient Savior is up to. Why did He come to take on flesh? Why did He have become the the invisible God made visible? Why was He born in this little town of Bethlehem in such squalor and pain and injustice? Verse 20 tells us it was for reconciliation. He was born so that we might be reconciled to our Father. Our sin is exposed so that the blood of Jesus can make reconciliation possible with our Heavenly Father. And you and I need it. We need reconciliation because of the alienation in our lives. We are estranged from God, as verse 21 says. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's us. We stood apart from God 
because of our hostile and sinful hearts. And yet God has come in the Lord Jesus to reconcile. And that word means to to reestablish a friendly relationship. He has come to to reestablish relationship that has been disrupted for some reason. And this world is, is certainly in need of being reconciled to its Heavenly Father, to its Creator. Our creation is filled with disease and floods and storms and all sorts of destruction. And when you look at our lives, you see such destruction of sin and death that reigns within us. And yet Paul says, the fullness of God has reconciled God to this broken world and to sinners like us. He has taken away the barrier that stands between a holy God and sinful people. How did He do it? Verse 20. He reconciles us through the blood of His cross. Now think carefully with me about how Paul communicates this truth. As Brett talked about in the Young Disciples moment, reconciliation happens with us most often when the one who's caused the offense going to apologize or repent or try to make right something that was broken. But that's not what Paul said happened here. Why not? Because God is the one doing the reconciling. God is the one who is pursuing. We are the ones who have the hostile minds in the evil acts, verse 21. But God is the one who affects reconciliation. God is the one who pursues sinners. And furthermore, His means were His too. Verse 20, He made peace by His cross. It was all God's doing. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you wonder whether you can be forgiven and cleansed for all that you've done, think of it this way. God was the one who was offended by your sin. And God is the one who named the price of death for your sin. And God is the one who paid that price because of your guilt. Is the blood of Jesus sufficient to cover over our sin? It is sufficient if God named the price and then God paid the price with His own blood. Of course it's sufficient. And so we, friends, can experience peace, that feeling of peace, because objective peace has been won. The war is over. Jesus made peace with God on our behalf because He paid the price of His own death on the cross. His cleansing is sufficient because it's His work from start to finish, from the plan to the execution of the plan to the application of the plan to our hearts. It's His idea. We only contribute one thing, and that is a need. The only thing we contribute is our need. And God does the rest. Friends, do you want to feel peace in your lives? Then remember how peace was truly one, forever one. God took on flesh, born for you, and then gave his life for you through his blood on the cross. The peace offering has been made. You are clean. By what Jesus has done. But also, Paul tells us that he's our sufficient Savior in presenting us to the Father in terms we would never claim for ourselves. Blameless. Being blameless, being truly blameless in the face of perfection, that that just seems untenable. That's something we don't have any way to access 
in our lives. For even, even when we feel like we're on the right side, we're blameworthy just a little bit, aren't we? Even in the way husbands and wives, we squabble and we fight and we like to put the blame on the other person, we have a little bit of the blame, don't we? Can't we recognize that? In virtually everything we do, we have a little bit of blameworthiness in our hearts. But Paul says here that we are presented as blameless in verse 21. Or another way to understand it is in Christ, the accused becomes unaccused. Isn't that incredible? When somebody accuses you of something in this life, when they they call you a name or they attack your character, we can't unhear that accusation, can we? That old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a lie. It's a lie. Words do hurt. Accusations do stick. It does take us down. But accusations don't stick before God. Because even when the accusations are true, Jesus has made peace with God by His blood and He presents us as blameless, as unaccused before the Heavenly Father. We're clean and blameless because Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Friends, as you hear those words, I want you to know this also, that the devil will love to distort what I just said. The devil loves to distort from the truth of the gospel. He loves it when we hear about all these things, these sins that are named, and we feel condemned for our sin. He loves it when we feel condemned. And he's going to seek to distract you from the truth that you are clean before your heavenly Father. He's going to try to distract you. He's going to try to distort the message. He's going to try to to bring to mind old wounds that you think there's no way I could be forgiven for something like that. That's what the devil loves to do. But hear the truth this morning. In Christ you are free from any and all condemnation by the blood of the cross. Hear that today. You are blameless before your Father. Because Jesus is a sufficient Savior. We have peace because the war is over. And yet we live our lives as if there's an uneasy armistice with God. A little bit like the armistice that stopped the Korean War. You know that the Korean War is not officially over. The conflict ended in verse in, uh, in 1953 with an armistice, with the ceasefire. But the two Koreas are not at peace. The war is not over and we see, uh, we see hostilities flare up from time to time on the news, right? That's how we so often view our relationship with God. We have an armistice. We have a temporary ceasefire. His hostility and His anger and His outright warfare with us might flare up at any moment. And as a consequence, we live without peace, or we try to buy peace by trying to be really, really good, trying to be good enough for God to make up for all the bad. But friends, it's not sufficient. We can't make up for our sin, our evil, or our hostility. But God has made peace. God named the price for our peace, and Jesus fully paid it on the cross. We have peace. Not a temporary halt in hostilities. But God has made an eternal 
and lasting peace with you through Christ. The war is over. And Jesus is now reigning as supreme Lord and as sufficient Savior. You and I this morning are called on to rest like those little birds under the wing of its mother. Safe, safe hidden away in the midst of a torrential world. And yet we have peace because Jesus reigns. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your might and by your power and by your strength, we would not only hear peace, but would we experience it today. You, Lord Jesus, took on flesh and were born amidst the announcement of peace on earth. Lord, we thank you that we are now holy and blameless in your sight by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Help us to believe it. Help us to stake our lives on it. And enable us to be agents of peace in this world. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.